Our scripture today is from um, Mark chapter 2, and the verses are actually 13 to 22. Um, This is the passage where Jesus calls Levi, or Matthew, um, to follow him. And he also eats with some sinners, and he's questioned about some rules about fasting. So anyway, we'll we'll, uh, be interested to hear how Joey picks up on this in a bit. But let's read this scripture together. It's found in your pew Bibles, if you want to turn there, to page 1554. It's Mark 2, verses 13 to 22. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. So as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. May God add his blessing to the reading of the scripture. Okay. In the last three weeks, we started a series on Jesus' teaching. Because recently, I've been really excited about it. And I think it's starting to click for me. Everyone has parts of the Bible that really speak to you and parts that you have a tough time understanding. Uh, For instance, I've always been kind of an Old Testament guy, and I had a hard hard time understanding some of the stuff in the Gospels. But recently, I think that God has kind of opened my eyes uh, so that I've gotten a better reading these Gospels, and I hope that he does that for you too. Since we started, uh, we spent three weeks on the Beatitudes, which is where Jesus basically describes what kind of people are part of God's kingdom. Uh, All the other Jews at this time had their own ideas about what made someone Jewish. The Zealots thought that people who violently overthrew Rome were truly Jewish, or the Pharisees thought people who really followed the law, the Torah, were really Jewish, or the Essenes thought that people who separated themselves off from society entirely were truly Jewish. You get the point. But Jesus says that what makes someone truly Jewish and eventually truly a part of God's people because God's covenant was extended to the Gentiles, uh, is a list of attributes. God's people, according to Jesus, 
were the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn over their own sin, the ones that forgive and try to make peace with those who wronged them. This kind of stuff was really not what the Jews of this time wanted to hear. They lived in a state of national disgrace. The Old Testament said that one day they were going to be the center of the world and that everyone would flock to Jerusalem to worship God in his temple. It said that Israel was supposed to have a king anointed by God that sits on her throne forever. But instead, they lived under the dominion of some foreign empire halfway across the known world. All the Jews at this time are trying to scheme up ways to raise up a great ruler that kicks out the Romans and gives the Jews revenge over the Gentiles. But instead, Jesus was calling them to forgive the Gentiles, to have mercy, to, have, to make peace, and to pray for them. All of this was stuff that the Jews should have known from their own scriptures, but their thirst for vengeance led them astray. Ultimately, Jesus said that the reason that the Jews were in a state of national disgrace wasn't really because of the Gentiles, but because of their own sin. That had always been the case, dating back to the Old Testament. They needed to take a look at themselves first and become the righteous kind of people they thought they were. Ultimately, their sins would be forgiven once they decide to forgive the Gentiles. None of it was very complicated, and none of it was new. What was new was the very middle and most important beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus promised that if his people would only recognize their own sin and long for righteousness, they would actually be made righteous. So much of the Old Testament echoed Deuteronomy 30, which basically said, Israel, if you want to live and, act, and be prosperous, act righteously. But we all know that you won't do that and you won't be prosperous. Jesus was proclaiming that this problem will be solved. Israel's national disgrace will be over because her sins would be forgiven. And her people will be made righteous through God's own power. We know he was right because 2,000 years later, we've gathered here today to worship this Jewish King Jesus. And the same idea goes for us today. We have God's forgiveness fully on offer at any time and at any moment you want it. And he will make you into the righteous kind of person that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes. And now in this passage, we get to see how this forgiveness of sins and this making people righteous thing works out. Once again, it's not in the way that the Jews at this time wanted. Jesus invites a tax collector to be his disciple. And I think even today we might have a serious problem with that. Uh, like no one likes the IRS agents, right? Uh, but in the ancient world, they had even more reason to hate tax collectors. The Jews during this time were living under the occupation of the Roman Empire for about a century. And after about a century, they had been able to live as an independent kingdom. They were proud of their independence, but it was taken away from them in a heartbeat. As you might imagine, the Jews didn't really have warm feelings towards the Romans. And about 40 years after the events of this passage, they revolted against them. And then about 60 years after that, they revolted again. When the Jews were taxed, they were being forced to pay taxes to an empire they absolutely hated. In 6 AD, when Jesus was about 10, the Romans brutally put down a revolt in his hometown, led by a Jew named Judah, Judah the Galilean, who said that God was the sole ruler of Israel and the Romans should not receive their taxes. As you can see, taxes were a bit of a sore subject for the Jews. 
But as much as they hated their taxes, the Jews hated their tax collectors even more. The tax collectors that the Romans employed were very often from the ethnicity that they were taxing. If they were taxing Gaul, their tax collectors would be Gallic. If they were taxing Egypt, their tax collector would be Egyptian. And of course, if they taxed Judea, their tax collectors would be Jewish. It made sense. They know the culture. They know the pressure points. They know how to keep the populace from revolting. But imagine what it would look like if as part of the Jewish people who hates Rome and wants to rid themselves of their occupation as soon as possible, you crossed the line and actually helped them tax the province. Doesn't sound great. We can be pretty certain that the tax collector that Jesus calls, Levi, was a Jew. Levi is an unmistakably Jewish name. It was the name of one of the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the other disciples were Jews. So pile on top of the strikes against Levi, including that he was a representative of the Roman Empire that they hated, that he was also a blood traitor. He's a Jew. He's supposed to be on our side. But instead, he's getting rich by cooperating with the Romans. Finally, and this is oversimplifying a bit, but the way the tax collectors were paid in the Roman Empire was that they were allowed to stim as much money off the top of what they collect as they want, as long as they had the muscle to back it up. Basically, every penny the tax collectors made was based off of what we, what we today would call cheating, and they made a lot of money. Honestly, I'm certain that if I lived at this time, I would have hated tax collectors just like they did. They did pretty much everything a person at this time could have done to deserve hatred. The passage says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Take a second to imagine what's happening here. There's a crowd that comes around Jesus so he can teach them as he's walking through that town. Then Jesus looks over the crowd, and of all the people that he could choose to talk to, he looks directly at a tax collector and says, come follow me and be my disciple, join my inner circle. It's not like he had any plausible deniability either. It's not like anyone could say, oh, silly Jesus. You didn't recognize that he was a tax collector. Maybe you should try and pick someone else. No, the text says that Levi was sitting at the tax booth, probably in the act of collecting taxes, skimming some off the top. There was no mistaking what Jesus was doing. Out of all the people present, he chose the exact wrong person. As a Jew, you might be able to forgive Jesus if he chose a common sinner, maybe some poor homeless thief or prostitute. At least you can make some excuses for that kind of person. They were desperate. They really can't be blamed for their actions, something like that. But there's no way that you could excuse being a tax collector in this society. They're not only blood traders, but they were getting rich off the backs of their fellow Jews in doing it. They had full agency, and they used it to betray their countrymen. Levi was probably wearing the best kind of clothes money could buy, eating well, had a huge house, everything. And all this about 15 years after Jesus' very hometown had revolted specifically against Roman taxation. In the book of Mark, this is taking place right after Jesus had healed a paralytic person, saying that his sins were forgiven. All the Pharisees were really angry with him for saying his sins were forgiven, too. First of all, it's ridiculously presumptuous for a mere human to forgive sins. The sins ultimately weren't against any person, but against God. 
If you're a human, how could you possibly forgive someone if they didn't sin against you? Of course, we know that Jesus could forgive sins because he was God in the flesh, but they didn't know that. Maybe someone could potentially say that someone's sins were forgiven, but only if they made a trip to the temple and made the right kind of sacrifice. I'm pretty sure the paralytic didn't do that. He was bedridden. The Pharisees control the temple, so clearly they would be a little bit miffed if someone was circumventing the temple to forgive sins. And they were. But Jesus won the argument pretty decisively when he got the paralytic to just get up and walk. You can't really upstage someone who performs a miracle like that. So everyone was really amazed, and the Pharisees really had eggs on their faces. Then in this passage, Jesus not only forgives Levi of his sins against the whole race of Jews and against her God, but he doesn't even provide some sort of miracle which might distract people from what really just happened. You could imagine someone being okay with someone saying a person's sins were forgiven if he miraculously gets a paralytic everyone knows to get up and walk. That whole forgiveness of sins thing would be water under the bridge at that point. But forgiving a tax collector that literally, literally everyone hates and has no excuse for his actions by simply telling the tax collector to follow you is just not done. No, that's just, that's just too far. If Jesus really does have this power of forgiveness, he's simply using it way too much. Making things worse, the way that Levi is called is described as pretty much exactly identical to the way that Simon and Andrew are called in the previous chapter of Mark. In both cases, it starts with introducing the person by their profession, Simon and Andrew as fishermen, and Levi as a tax collector. Then Jesus calls them, and in both cases, they're in the act of doing their job, Simon and Andrew casting their nets, and Levi sitting at his tax booth. Then finally, Jesus says, follow me, and they both drop everything they're doing to follow him. What's scandalous about all this is that the way that Jesus calls an innocent, honest fisherman making his living, and the way he calls a blood traitor tax collector is the exact same. There's no difference. You would like it to go something like, hey, fisherman, good job contributing to society. Now come sit at my right hand at a place of honor in my kingdom. And then something like, hey, tax collector, you are scum. Everyone hates you, and I do too. You can come into my kingdom as, as a probationary member, but if you stick a toe out of line, you're done. And if you're lucky, maybe you can pick up some scraps under the table. Jesus calls all the wrong people, and he still does today. But one of the constant reminders the Bible gives us is that we all want a forgiving God, because frankly, we all need a healthy dose of forgiveness. But the problem is that if you want a forgiving God, then you can expect that he will forgive people that you don't want him to forgive. He'll even give those people you don't want to forgive ample, ample time to come to their senses. Too much time, to be sure, if you ask some people. You could say, this person caused so much destruction while you were giving him a chance to come to his senses, God. We love to tell stories about how some horrible sinners suddenly repent and are forgiven by God and join the Christian community. It's a beautiful demonstration of the gospel. But there's another side of that where there are probably some victims of, that, of those crimes who might not be so happy that God has forgiven them. Imagine being a Jew and you lost your house because of the shady practices of people like Levi. It might be tough to swallow watching Levi gain forgiven with a simple, follow me. It'd be cathartic either to just completely reject someone like Levi from God's kingdom, or if he absolutely needs to be allowed in, 
at least to make him feel as much shame as possible. But of course, we all recognize the issue. We all need forgiveness, so we all need a forgiving God. And once we have taken God's forgiveness, we have no right to tell God who he shouldn't forgive. And it's not hard to imagine the relief of someone like Levi, who are allowed to become full members of God's people after repenting, no strings attached. It's not hard, because we already have that experience. We've experienced what it's like to be forgiven. And it's the cornerstone of the community of God's people to be willing not only to say, God forgives you, but to say, I forgive you and welcome you to the table. We pray, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And what could be a greater expression of the forgiveness of sins than for the person that sinned and the person they sinned against to have dinner and party together? Try it. It's honestly pretty hard to hold a grudge against someone you're eating with. Try it and find out. Jesus reclined at the table at his house, and there were tons of these sinners with him. Apparently, this whole forgiving sins thing was attractive to, to people who wanted their sins forgiven. Who knew? Jesus had gone out into the community and just told everyone that their sins were forgiven if they followed him. But just telling them was one thing. He actually hung out with them. It's pretty hard to hang out with sinners if you haven't actually forgiven them. Then the Pharisees come along, and they totally sound like party poopers here. Everyone's having a good time, but the Pharisees come in and try, trying to figure out why everyone's having a good time. You people shouldn't be happy. Stop having fun. But again, I think if we good church-going people were present at the time, we would have had about the same reaction. Because the way the Pharisees saw it, these sinners and tax collectors were the ones that were keeping God from coming back to his people, and they were keeping Israel from their national glory. The Jews at this time didn't really feel like God was with them. And the end of the Old, Test Old Testament basically said as much. About 600 years before this, the Israelites were deported away from their land by the Babylonians because they sinned over and over in unthinkably stupid ways. And when they came back 70 years later, it didn't really feel like they were back. The Israelites didn't have their own king like God had promised them. They lived under the oppression of foreign rulers, and worst of all, God's temple that they rebuilt seemed empty. When the first temple was commissioned in 1 Kings 8, 400 years earlier, there was a bunch of miraculous things like clouds filling the temple so that no one could see anything, which made it clear that God was living there. The new temple didn't have those miraculous things happening in it, and it was puny and pathetic by comparison to the first temple. It was so bad that in Ezra 4, when the new temple was built, the young people were cheering because they finally have a temple and they thought that God was with them. But the old people who saw the first temple were weeping because they saw how pathetic the new temple was and because they recognized that God was still not with them. It was a terrible day in Israel. Apparently, the sin of the Israelites was even worse than they had imagined and God was not with them. But the people prayed and prayed that one day they would be free of their foreign rulers that a Jewish king would sit on their throne. Most of all, they prayed that God would come back and be with them. The prophets said it would happen. In Malachi 3, it says that one day the Lord whom you seek will return suddenly to his temple. But who can endure the day of, the Lord, of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. 
In other words, God is coming, and make sure you're ready for it. The message of books like Nehemiah were hugely important for people like the Pharisees. It basically said that God will return to his people when they actually follow the Torah, the law that they have with God. And it wasn't just saying, make sure you follow the Torah. It said, also make sure your neighbor is following the Torah. Because if Israel as a whole is sinful, God won't come back to his temple just because you're righteous. In other words, Nehemiah said, your sin is my business because it's keeping God from coming back and being present with us. So Nehemiah exposed all this secret sin that was going on in the seedy underbelly of Israel and punished them severely. And you can read about it in Nehemiah 13. That sounds a lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? In this passage, the Pharisees have this exact Nehemiah mindset. They're saying, Jesus, you can't hang out with sinners and tax collectors. You're supposed to punish them. You're supposed to make them outcasts. Because if we keep sinning, if we keep letting them sin and defile Israel, then God won't forgive our sins. Then God will never come back to his people. And if God never comes back to his people, he's not going to give us our own king, and we're going to live under Rome for centuries. Now think about that for about five seconds, and you'll recognize how ironic it is. The Pharisees are saying, God won't come back to his people, Jesus, if you act like this. But they're missing the fact that they're talking to God. The Pharisees are saying, God won't give us a king who can save us from the oppression of Gentiles if you act like this, Jesus. But they're talking to the king himself. They're doing all this stuff to make sure that God comes back to be present with them. But God is sitting right in front of them. You can see this Nehemiah mindset again when the people come and ask them why they're not fasting. The Jews during this time would have, would have all these feast, fasting days where they would be praying that God would come back to his people and set up his kingdom and forgive their sins. If you've seen Seinfeld, it's like an episode that happens where Kramer goes to an AIDS walk and everyone's wearing a ribbon, but Kramer won't wear one. So then everyone's chasing him all over the city and yelling, don't you care about AIDS? Why won't you wear the ribbon? The Pharisees are just like that. They're basically saying, don't you care about the kingdom coming? Why aren't you fasting? But again, Jesus says in his trademark cryptic ways so that no one kills him too fast, the kingdom is here. I'm the king. What are you talking about? Stop fasting for it and start celebrating it. And you can really tell that Jesus knows his way around a party because of the metaphors he uses. Apparently, he knows quite a bit about wine and wineskins and feasts. What Jesus is saying here is so revolutionary that I'll bet none of the Pharisees could have understood it at the time. He's saying, God gave you 500 years to clean up your act, and you didn't do it. But instead of punishing you more, God has actually jumped the gun and came to you anyway. You fast and you strictly follow the little minutia of the Torah so that God would forgive your sins and end exile. But forgiveness of sins is fully on offer. As we've seen, it's like a fire sale of, God, of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is just throwing it around, and the people hardly have to do anything for it, to the point that his house is bursting with tax collectors and sinners and Levi and the paralytic. Again, Jesus says to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's kind of genius. Because if you heard that as someone who thinks they're righteous, you'd think, okay, 
So then what Jesus is doing here isn't for me. I'm righteous. I don't need it. But if you recognize that no one is righteous, including yourself, you'd hear, you can join the party if you just see that you need the forgiveness of sins. You can be just like Levi sitting next to me, who yesterday was a tax collector and today is sitting at the right hand of God himself. You can be a part of the kingdom that just came after 500 long years of waiting. And you can celebrate it with the king himself, no strings attached. You can stop being a party pooper and join the party, and everyone here will welcome you. The kingdom is here. Make sure you're right with God, stop fasting, and join the party. Now is the time to celebrate. Today, we're going to feast together after church. And this is a big deal. It's not just a matter of we like each other, and as people who like each other, we're going to spend some time together. Although I hope that's kind of true. <laughs> By feasting together, we're actually going to say something to the world. We're partying because Jesus Christ is king of the world. At long last, justice and righteousness is here, and God is present with his people. We're partying in total defiance of the forces of evil, demons and corrupt governments and petty criminals because they think they rule over the world, but actually through the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus Christ has broken their power. The picnic after church is a continuation of our worship service, because we proclaim the gospel there. And good food and fun sounds like a great way to worship. We're also telling the world that this is a community where forgiveness is found. Even if you were part of those forces of evil five seconds ago, you can join the party with the tiniest baby step of repentance like nothing ever happened. The church is a place where anybody can come and repent and follow Jesus, just like we've done, and they can be full members in good standing of a forgiven community, no strings attached. A person that hated us last week can walk into our church and say, I want to follow Jesus, I'm trying to put away my old ways, can I come to your church? And we are obligated by God to say, brother in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And then, if we have a church picnic, we are obligated by God to invite him there, and we are especially obligated by God to have fun with him. God demands that we have fun together. And if we're throwing around a frisbee, he's throwing around a frisbee with us. As you might imagine, this kind of message might be most attractive to all the wrong people. It was in Jesus' day, and it is now. The people who are most desperate for forgiveness are most likely to take us up on our offer, not the people who manage to tell themselves that they don't need it. If that's weird, we're just going to have to get over it. God forgave us, so we forgive them. And obviously, forgiveness is hard, especially if it affects us. But we can depend on Jesus to help us out with it, because obviously he has a lot of experience with it. Every person who's ever been forgiven was forgiven by Jesus. Feasting together this afternoon is our way of celebrating that we are all forgiven in Christ. And because of that, there is no legitimate friction between us. We have a different kind of kingdom where people are willing to hang out with people that are wronged them. You don't see a whole lot of that outside the church. So if you haven't forgiven someone here, seek them out before we go to the picnic. You don't have to make it all dramatic. A simple, we cool, is all it takes. But we are obligated by God to have fun and party with each other this afternoon. So don't make it weird with your grudge. 
We also feast today to celebrate that because God has forgiven us, he has already built this kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. When we party together, we're partying with Jesus because he said, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And during his life, Jesus apparently really knew how to party because the kingdom was here. And so he'll be at the picnic to show us how to do it. Even more than that, we're feasting together in expectation of a future feast. That'll be the time when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a wedding feast because God has married himself to the church and nothing can ever spoil that relationship. Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I'm excited, and I hope you are too, to go to our picnic this afternoon and get a foretaste of that marriage feast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you partied with sinners and tax collectors, and we pray that we also would be allowed to be in your presence and party with you this afternoon as we celebrate that you have conquered the world on the cross and rule in justice and righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen.